The film is inspired by Gothic romantic writing. Partially it takes place in the delicate and exotic bush, which can be very claustrophobic and frightening. It touches on the forced assimilation of the Maori people and tries to explore the relationship between fetishism and love. Piano lesson is very sophisticated, easily the most adult or complex material I've attempted. It's the first film I've written that has a proper story, and it was a big struggle for me to write. It meant I had to admit the power of narrative, and there's definitely room to play visually, in fact. There's a big call for it. Those are words from director Jane Campion on her 1993 film, The Piano. Faces of Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and today we're talking about the piano. A quick synopsis of the film is, In the mid-19th century, a mute woman is sent to New Zealand, along with her young daughter, and prized piano for an arranged marriage to a farmer, but is soon lusted after by a farm worker. The film stars Holly Hunter as Ada McGrath, Harvey Keitel as George Baines, Sam Neill as Alastair Stewart, Anna Paquin as Flora McGrath, and Carrie Walker as Aunt Morag. It's written by Jane Campion, cinematography by Stuart Dreiberg, directed by Jane Campion, edited by Veronica Genet, and music by Michael Nyman. Today, my guest is Sarah, also known as Miss Sinclair on Talk Movie to Be podcast. And you should recognize her from our Sunset Boulevard episode from my Billy Wilder series. So first and foremost, Sarah... Thanks so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Hi, Felicia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to be here for Male Full Frontal Month, a.k.a. Yep. <laughs> Jane Campion Month. You did not yes. need to twist my arm. <laughs> no, I know. It's funny because most of the guests I have slated for this month are women. And um, we all <laughs> talk about how Jane Campion is for the girls. She really She's is for, for the, the girls. girls. We love Jane. We we, we love really Jane. Do. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, Sarah's been on before. If you go back and listen to the Sunset Boulevard episode, you'll learn more about her background in film and her podcast as well. Highly recommend you check it out. It'll be in the show notes. But instead of having her reintroduce herself, Sarah, I'll ask you if you can recommend two to three films that you've watched in the recent weeks or months that you think that the listener should add to their watch list. Yes, absolutely. And I, I should say that you recently were on Talk Movie to me to talk about mm-hmm. the, the fall. And this is a new movie. Also, yes. But we got yeah. you on there talking about a new movie from 2023, which is really great. <laughs> which I loved. So it's movie season right now. There's so many good movies out. And I'm just in heaven right now. Finally, yeah. all these movies have come out, especially over Christmas. But I would say that in terms of some movies that I've seen recently that are in the theaters or, or streaming is The Zone of Interest. I love that. Jonathan oh, it's Glazer's out. new movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's in theaters. Um, I mean, I saw it at Tiff Bell Lightbox. Uh, But I know that it it is in some theaters. That was a fascinating watch. I really want to talk about that with you. Okay. I do want to see it. It's so thought provoking. And if people like Jonathan Glazer and you like challenging films, films that you can really sink your teeth into and discuss after this one is really good. It's a hard 
watch for a variety of reasons, but that is what makes it interesting and makes it impactful. And I just, I, I just, he's such a fantastic director. I just really, really love the zone of interest. Poor Things is honestly, I think so far my favorite movie of the year. Loved it so much. I rewatched In the Cut this week just to mm. familiarize myself again with, with some Jane Campion films and Mark Ruffalo is in that and his character in that and also his character in Poor Things. Oh, Mark Ruffalo is a sex machine. That's all I'm going to say yeah. <laughs> about that. And Emma Stone is in me. I think it. that's honestly the best performance of the year, at least for me, is yeah. Emma Stone in Poor Things. So I love that as well. And in terms of older films, if I'm allowed to say one more, Please. I watched, as you know, because I did text you, I watched mm-hmm. Altered States, yeah, <laughs> the Ken Russell film. <laughs> that is so much fun. It turns very Cronenberg, which I was not expecting. Mm-hmm. And it's just so philosophical. It has a lot of body horror. And obviously, it's Ken Russell, so it has themes of sex and religion running throughout. Oh, yeah. Ken Russell, he does horny, horny religion. That's what he does. He, do- and <laughs> he it's literally just does. Chock full of that. Uh, so those are my three recommendations that I, I really enjoyed recently. Those are great. I mean, mm-hmm. for anyone who listened to the Sunset Boulevard episode or will listen to it and mention that Sarah and I have a our own, I like to call it a movie club. You know, there's two people in it, but it's a movie club. Yeah. And Ken Russell has come up quite a few times. Hit or miss. In my opinion, there was only one miss, but... <laughs> It was it's a big otherwise. miss for you. It was a big miss for me. And I know it's it's a favorite of everyone else's, but not for me. But I love everything else he's done apart from the devils. When you hate something, you hate it so fully. I really do. It takes a lot for me to hate something. You like, give 100% to your hate <laughs> for movies. <laughs> pro Ken Russell, though. And then Poor Things has been on my list. It definitely... February is usually my month where I try and catch up on the new stuff pre-Oscars. So you don't I'll just catch up, that. you you completely devour. I know. Like you you won't have seen any of these <laughs> films throughout the entire year. And then somehow within one month, you've watched every single Oscar contender. <laughs> yeah, you just you full on devour all the new films in one month. Some years it's good, and some years uh, it makes me want to question my life choices. But a movie we both recommend is The Piano. Do you recall, because this is a rewatch for both of us, mm-hmm. do you recall the first time you watched it and what your thoughts were on that first watch? Because we'll get into your thoughts now. So the first time that I saw The Piano, I was very young. And there's a lot of movies in my life that I truly have no idea how or why I saw them. Like I have vivid memories of some films and I, you know, was my mom watching them? Was it on TV? Like, how did I see this? But the piano has always stuck out in my mind. I think maybe my mom must've been watching it. I'm, I'm not sure, but I have this distinct memory of the shot when Harvey Keitel is under the piano and there's the small rip in Holly Hunter's tights. I don't know why, but that like I, I when I saw that, I had no idea what that meant or what that was. But 
for some reason, that imagery has really stuck in my mind. And every time I think of the piano, I think of that very specific moment in the film. And I remember it from being young. It's it's very weird. Um, the other thing is that when I was a kid, I looked exactly like Anna Paquin. Like yeah. people, yeah, people used to say, you're that girl from Fly Away Home. <laughs> oh, my God. So I always like I always were like people are always like you look like little Anna Paquin. So I have this affinity for Anna Paquin because she kind of looks like I did when I was a kid. But in my early 20s, I watched this again. And obviously, it was a completely different experience because I actually knew what was going on. And Mm -hmm. I could appreciate the themes and the beauty of it a lot more. And this week when I was rewatching it for this podcast, I was fully into it as an adult woman. I think that this time around was the time where I really, really got it so much more than I had when I I was younger. But the thing that I think is so beautiful about this is that as a woman, you can kind of watch this at so many different decades and you and you take something from it as as you grow up and you understand it in a different way as you get older. So this time around was, I think, the, the one, the one time I watched it where I, I was like, I really understand this so much more than I had in the past. I think that's so good. Mm-hmm. I think it's so rare to watch a film about a woman where as you watch it, as you grow older, you grow more understanding and loving of it as opposed to being like oh no this is really not good yeah like oh this doesn't hold up yeah so that's just a testament to jane's writing and just the film in general because it's Mm -hmm. very rare i just love a film that you can watch you know and within say 10 year spans and it's three different completely you know Mm -hmm. viewings of it because you're a whole different person at that point Mm -hmm. so that was something I was saying in my last, I guess it'd be two series from now at the, by the time this is out for Bergman of watching it, you know, as a late teen, early 20s. Mm. And then now in my 30s and be like, oh, these are completely different you know, movies yeah. to me. They're just too heavy when you're you don't fully grasp those concepts when you're young. I think that for book for our bucket list, we've done a few Jane Campion. Mm hmm. We did Holy Smoke, for sure. Yeah, and I think Sweetie. Oh, yeah. Sweetie's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sweetie's the, a movie. Sweetie's a lot. Sweetie's stressful. I found Sweetie. Yeah. <laughs> I've loved exploring her filmography oh, uh, just over the past little while. And I think that it's Jane Campion, Lynn Ramsey, and Claire Denis that I've really, really made a point of. Yeah going through their filmography and really trying to watch all of their movies. Like, uh, you know, obviously it's a always kind of a work in progress. They have so much, mm-hmm. there's so much content there, but uh, those are the three that I've been really connected with. I find, and I think it's because their movies haunt me. Like Jane Campion's movies, they haunt me. Yeah. You know, obviously from that shot as a child that I saw with the, the ripped hole in the stocking, there's just something that just stays with you and it's, it, it's, it haunts you. Those, those three women are very interesting because they're so different, but I think that they have such a lasting impact on people mm-hmm. and different degrees of haunting than the yeah. other 
if you have to rate them, I would still say Claire Denise the most messed up out of the three of them. Yes. <laughs> but like <laughs> yes. Claire, she does some stuff where I'm just like, um, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> but if you're ready, we can get into the the film itself. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. So one of the first things I want to talk about was kind of Ada as someone who has women's desires and like needs and thoughts. Mm-hmm. But the she never speaks herself throughout the film, but we get a voiceover from her. And the voiceover from her is a child's voice because she stopped speaking at the age of six. Mm-hmm. That's the last time she's heard herself speak. So there's that weird contrast of when the voiceover comes over, it's a child's voice, but it's Ada's voice. But you're seeing her, at least as a myself as a woman, I see her as a full woman, but the way people treat her is kind of like a child. Mm-hmm. Is that that weird kind of parallel of her voice being a child and the way people treat her as a child because she doesn't speak and she seems like she's shy and a bit repressive, even though we know she's not. She just is to the husband that she'd never met before. So kind of how do you feel about the decision to make that voice a child's voice mm-hmm. as opposed to her kind of imagining what her adult voice would sound like? It's such an interesting moment when the film starts and you hear that voice because it almost sounds like it would be Anna Paquin's character. Yes. N- narrating. For, I, I remember thinking once watching this that, is that is that Anna Paquin's voice? But then you realize it's it's Ada's voice. And it's so interesting because that voice doesn't match the woman that you're seeing Mm-mm. at all. The voice is so innocent. It's ch- so childlike. And you think that her inner voice would be as dark as the character appears. Like you see this very stark woman. Her hair is tight. She's in this big black dress and those things don't match so it's this strange feeling that you get when you're first introduced to to the character but I do actually think it's interesting you know you saying that the voice sounds like when she decided when she stopped talking Mm -hmm. and I didn't even necessarily think of it that way I just thought that her inner world was still childlike in terms of her artistry and her wonderment and that inner life that we all have that people don't necessarily see when they look at our you know outward physical appearance so I took it more as that but I do really love that I actually never thought of oh that's the voice she when she stopped talking that's the age Mm -hmm. yeah I I think both are totally valid and I think that's Mm -hmm. just her she is kind of, I don't know if childish is the right word, but she is appears but quite innocent because she likes a simple sort of life. You know, she loves her piano. She loves her daughter. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that they explicitly said that she lost her voice at six years old. I think a six-year-old would still have that type of voice. The first time I watched it, I just assumed it was Anna Paquin narrating. Yeah, for her yeah. In the terms, but then as you watch, you're like, oh, okay, no, it's not. But speaking of Annie Paquin and Holly Hunter, the, uh, their mother and daughter in this film, this is Ada and Flora is the daughter's name, and I find their relationship to be very interesting because 
she's essentially a single mother. The father is not around for whatever. I don't know if it's implied that the father was the her previous lover who died. I think I thought that's how I read it. Mm-hmm. I've read conflicting things that it was another person, but she's raised the, the daughter on her own. And now she is being sent off to marry someone else. And Flora, as, on their journey over, she's like, I'm not going to call him Papa. You know, mm-hmm. he's not my father. What I love about their relationship is kind of the early scenes once they get to the beach where they're like, I'm going to stay here with the piano. I'm going to wait for Alastair Stewart uh, to come and meet them because I want to stay by the piano and they camp out together. They kind of seem like sisters. Yeah. She could be her much older sister because of the way that Holly Hunter is dressed and she's very petite. And she's got a very kind of small demeanor that she mm-hmm. could have been her sister. So there's like so several different dynamics between them. Like there's clear moments where she's her mother and daughter. There's times where they seem like they're sisters. And then eventually there's darker scenes where it's like mother versus kind of like a an enemy of some sorts, which happens mm. with parents. How did you read their relationship as it grows and ups and downs through the story? Well, the dynamic is so unorthodox at the beginning because Flora has had to take on all these adult characteristics in order to communicate for her mother so she has to speak an adult language and so sometimes you do feel that dynamic shift of who you know who's a mother who's the daughter because flora is acting as her voice i would just love i just want to say that that first scene when they come onto the beach and they've been yanked from their previous life and they're just being carried together across yeah. this, you know, cr- across onto this beach. It's so beautiful and it's just so bizarre. So you just, when you see them together on that beach and then this little girl is speaking for her mother, it's just a very strange introduction to their relationship. I think the thing that I love most about them is that they have this secret world, like this secret connection and language, and it makes everybody else feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And we'll get it will get into the Sam Neill character a lot more, I'm sure, but there is something that is very special to them and it's kind of a club that other people aren't invited into. Because they have that communication together and that connection, I think it it does isolate a lot of people from them, actually. It's like they have their own secret world. And I think she yeah. shoots that really well with those intimate moments, especially, you know, on, on the beach. And you get this sneak peek into their like secret, their secret life and their secret language. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely agree with all of that. I love that they kind of have their own language. And I love that. Uh, Flora kind of speaks as though she's always telling like a folklore tale. Mm-hmm, <laughs> she's always mm-hmm. telling some big story because that's the way her mother translating the words. So she's just telling it that way. It seems very story-like. But I love the way Jane Campion films women's relationships or girls' relationship mm-hmm. in all of her films because when they do come up, 
they're so intimate, but they seem honest and the way that women do talk to each other and the honesty and the bluntness that comes with it. So I, I appreciate that, especially with these two characters. She also has to kind of hold the authority and the attitude that Ada is trying to convey and stand up yeah. to these men and say, keep this piano. Like she, she has to be the one asserting that authority and conveying that with her, her little, little girl voice. She's a little girl, mm-hmm. you know, and she has to stand up to these men to communicate this for her mother. <laughs> and she's very good at it. She's very good at it. Um, but she gets like the stubbornness really well. They also have really funny moments together adjusting to this new life and this new landscape. The atmosphere in this movie is just incredible. But they're, you know, the beach seems so unforgiving at first. It's so windy. It's so vast. This movie is so muddy and they have a wonderful moment. This is like one of my favorite moments in the film is when they're crossing like just this Mm-hmm. inches and inches of, of mud and holly hunter just throws down this smallest piece of wood and tries to step across it and she kind of gestures to flora to step on it too and they just both sink right into the mud and it's such yeah. a great mother-daughter moment but also shows us how hard it is for these two women to just out of nowhere start adjusting to this new environment it just seems yeah. it, comical in a way, but it also it's so unforgiving in so many ways as well. It really is. And it's it's interesting for me because this is one of the later Campion films that I would have seen all day enough, even though it's probably one of her most well-known. And mm. I have a daughter. And when I first saw this, she was a very small baby. So I had that mindset where I didn't, I was like, I'm still a new mother parent i didn't really feel like that i still felt like my old self kind of and then re-watching it being like oh i kind of aspire to have that relationship with my daughter you know at least the earlier parts of the film even later it's like you understand at least for me i kind of understood flora's decisions on that but that closeness and that the relationship they have and just kind of having their own language to themselves mm-hmm. is felt very special to me. And I love that. It's not something you see often in film. But um, Ada's going over. So she's Scottish. Her and Flora are Scottish. And they're being brought over to New Zealand. And you mentioned mm-hmm. how beautiful the landscape is. And it, it really is. We see a lot of how beautiful the landscape is. And I, I love the choice of coloring in this film. It's very blue and and a deep green and gray throughout mm-hmm. just because it's very damp <laughs> in this film. Yeah. There's a mm-hmm. lot of rain. There's a lot of wetness. And the coloring, you know, resembles that that they did in the the post uh, of this film. But she's coming over to New Zealand because she's been married to a man she has never met. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, watching this, I'm like, no. you know? No. They're just sold to a man to marry him. I, I, Especially as like, not that it should happen ever, but like as an adult woman. Yeah. I don't, I never want to meet another man. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I mean, we'll get into it more, but I did text you after watching this. I was honestly like, fuck men and fuck Sam Neill. Yeah, truly. It's so like, bad. 
but she's married off. She's never met this man. And obviously she's apprehensive. It's just like, and that's what I love about this film. It's not that she's excited to, you know, be taken care of by a man and she just gets to chill. And obviously she's just being sold as a wife because it's a status thing for him to have a wife because he's doing work. It's not like she's expected to do anything. Um, and he's taking her and she has a child. So it's like, it's seen as really nice of him, but it's not. Well, yeah, I was going to say that. Do you think it's something like, she you know is unmarried she has a child and you know her father was like well this is you know the best we can do for you off you go Uh, very much that and it's just so sad to see that i just cannot i cannot even imagine Mm -hmm. the thoughts going through her head but like the concept of marriage in this film is very interesting because in other stories in other films she would either be excited about it or she it would be this whole big love story that they would eventually fall in love. But it's not that way in this film. She doesn't acknowledge him really. She doesn't let mm-hmm. him touch her. They don't sleep in the same bed. Mm-hmm. She barely wants to be around him. It's kind of funny. And I appreciate what the film does. It kind of makes you feel a bit sorry for him in the bit, uh, in the first half of the film. Because mm-hmm. you're just like, the guy seems like a nice guy. He's trying you know, he wants to be able to love her and she's not giving him anything until you realize deep down he's a very angry human being and he doesn't deserve her love. But how do you feel about the approach to marriage in the time that it was set, especially uh, mm-hmm. and the way it was portrayed in this film through Ada? Well, I mean, the idea is just horrific <laughs> to me. Uh, And I think that it's one of those moments where you realize that silence can actually have a lot of power. And her silence, and yes, she's chosen to be silent since she was six, but she's silent, I think, to protest her oppression and Mm -hmm. to have some sort of control and power over the men that are oppressing her. And you see that with Sam Neill, the more silent she is, the more it it angers him because he feels this sense of isolation. He feels this loss of control over her. And really, this is the only one of the only movies where I think it's good for a woman to be silent. <laughs> you know, we're so used to a woman being being silent being a bad thing. And Jane Campion really flips it into looking at it in terms of the power that silence can have. And I know people were actually a little bit up in arms with the Irishman, having Anna Paquin come full circle here, where a lot of people felt that she didn't say enough. But at the same time, even Anna Paquin in that movie, the power she has in her silence towards her father reminded me a lot of Holly Hunter in the piano. And I think that that is how she stands her ground against Sam Neill. She doesn't need to give him her love Mm -hmm. or her voice. She isn't his property, really, though he thinks that she is. And you do feel at the beginning that Sam Neill might be okay like yeah. I, I like how the film sets you up to think like, okay, it's he might be empathetic, he might be kind to her. 
But then you realize that his ego is fragile and that he feels entitled to her love, which is, I think, a type of man that Jane Campion focuses on a lot in her movies. Like I, because I watched in the cut again recently, Kevin Bacon's character is that in, in the cut, it's these men that feel entitled to these women. I felt a lot of, I actually found a lot of parallels between in the cut and this movie in terms of like character, character archetype. She really has certain types of people that she focuses on in film. I I could see those parallels in in the cut and then i felt a lot of it in portrait of a lady too Mm. and just she kind of focuses on as you said fragile men because i think Mm. it's important to focus on those men because they're not highlighted enough despite the fact that we all know those type of men they're just Mm -hmm. not it's not you know masculine they're just you know wolf they're wolf wolves in sheep's clothing and the other thing too is like they are very much about keeping up appearances Alistar is very much about his appearance and his you know social standing and you know lurking underneath the surface though is a very resentful very small man it's the same I think with almost all the men in her film the only one I could think of maybe not was Jesse Plemons character in Power of the Dog, he's still small, but he's not small for that reason. Yeah. It's the men who are making him feel small, which is also a whole other mm-hmm. conversation. But I just love the way that she's able. It's so, I think it's just so, we talk about films that are quote unquote feminist and what you people think is feminism. Everyone has their own version of feminism, which is fair. I don't think there's a you know definition of it. I think everyone has their own version of it and what they feel as a feminist film. I think that Jane Campion is very much a feminist director in my eyes. Oh yeah. I think that she's someone who shows not women as being perfect people. And I love that. I don't think a woman mm-hmm. should ever just be like someone who's like championing for whatever cause. It's just like women who are human and just trying to live their lives. And you see that in this film. And you see that in, in the cut and so on. Um, so we'll get into that and how you feel about Ada as a feminist character. But. She has messy dynamics with men, as a lot mm-hmm. of women do. And we do see that in In the Cut, too, with the Meg Ryan character, which kind of reminded me of, of this movie as well. Like Meg Ryan's relationship mm-hmm. with Mark Ruffalo is a lot like Harvey Keitel and Holly Hunter in, in this yep film people have messy dynamics it's you Mm -hmm. know just just the way it is and i do think that she likes to have a male character that is both rough and gentle and what i love about this film too is the atmosphere that this is all taking place in is also rough and gentle and you see moments of roughness especially with the beach then you see moments of beauty and a paquin dancing on the beach with um, Ada's character, with George, moments are rough, moments are gentle. And I think that, you know, yes, this starts off kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah. I don't recommend that you do that if you're a man to try to get a woman, maybe not hold their prized possession hostage and 
bargain no. with them, <laughs> ask them <laughs> bargain with their bodies and their time. Not yeah. really the way to do it. But, you know, she finds the nuance in mm-hmm. this relationship and she finds the tenderness in this relationship. And she just has two people that ultimately want something out of each other. I think he thinks she is so beautiful. And I I genuinely believe that. You believe that when he looks at her and especially when she's playing the the piano on the beach and he has that moment of hearing her play and looking at her. And I think to Ada, he represents freedom. He's somebody that lives outside of societal expectations. He's Mm -hmm. somebody that is a lot more attuned with the natural world. He's a bit animalistic as well. And I think that she is somebody who doesn't who is who is protesting against these expectations that are put on her Mm -hmm. and i just think she sees him as as a freedom and as a protest against the situation that she's in i think that's so interesting Mm -hmm. i was gonna ask you about that i'm glad that you brought that up because i was like how do you feel about the start of their relationship to how it ends fundamentally not the not the best idea to start it, but you know, luckily where it goes. <laughs> That's the thing. Like it's every time, both times, even on this watch where it starts, I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Even though I knew what was going to happen and I knew the trajectory of their relationship, but it seems to work for them. I think the beauty of Jane Campion's directing is that she gives these female characters so much agency and mm-hmm. it's not just one-sided this power dynamic at all yeah this is going back and forth there's moments of dominance there's moments of submission for both of the characters so you don't ever feel like she is being completely victimized because the performance is so great as well she has so much silent confidence and authority and she truly has agency in so many moments that you never fully feel like she's being completely victimized. Like you do see it going back and forth. And that's what makes it so compelling to watch. Yeah. And I think that's such like, it's really so hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it, it's wild to me that people don't acknowledge her writing. And although she, she hasn't written all the films that she's done, but she did write this and to acknowledge the power in that, like, I wish I could write something like that. You know, because when you're watching it as a woman who, whatever level of confidence that you have, you can identify with certain parts of the story where you're like, oh, I feel my, I feel seen in this part of the story. And that's, I think, so powerful. Mm-hmm. And to not just be like a heavy handed, I'm a feminist. I'm going to live my life this way. It's just been, that's not how life works, unfortunately. You know, mm-hmm. as much as we all think that we can do our own things, it's like we're going to be held down by whatever system that's depressing us. And I think that she is over the decades that she's been working. It's still so on top of it. And I just need her to continue working forever mm-hmm. because she's my hero. And I really, I really love her so much, but you kind of touched upon it is sexuality and how it's kind of a tool 
in this. And I, I say tool, but I don't mean it in a derogatory way. I say it as like a, she knows that it's present and the men in her lives know it's present. And she knows how she can get away with using or not using it. So there's two men in her life. There's her actual husband, Alistair, who's Sam Neill, but she just wants nothing to do with. In his mind, he's being repressed because she's not being affectionate. You know, the women in his life in the house are saying, she'll eventually become more affectionate. Don't worry. It'll happen. And he's just waiting for it to happen. You think that he's being patient, but he's really not. And we get a few scenes with him where he's really not being patient, unfortunately. And then we get George, who is more straightforward about his impatience and how that works with Ada and the whole p- and the piano. I think it's such an interesting dynamic between the three of them because there is a triangle there. How did you view the way her sexuality is used between those two characters? Well, it's so funny too because <laughs> she's in the most clothes possible. <laughs> I- so many layers. That like huge, a wire dress. Yeah, that huge dress that she is wearing throughout this entire film. I find it so fascinating. I don't know how they did it. it was, it was that like, like too many under, layers. The, the undercarriage too. And but she does manage to make it it's sexy though. Sexy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But I I just, I loved the nuance of Ada's sexuality. It's in her hands when she plays Mm -hmm. her piano. There's so many beautiful hand shots of her. There's parts of her body that are emphasized that are not the stereotypical thing that you see when you see movies and and you think of sex, you know, like that, the little piece of skin that's showing through the stocking. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he, George wants to just touch her neck and touch her skin and, oh, lie beside me. You know, there's there's so much beauty and nuance in mm-hmm. it. And so much sexuality that's unspoken, too. Just being able to use your eyes and, and your face and to, like, hold your body a certain way. It's a fascinating betrayal of of sexuality in a really repressed time. I was going to ask you what you thought of what this the piano meant in this mm-hmm. film because the film is called The Piano. Piano is very relevant. Piano is actually quite relevant in a lot of her films. So my guess is that she is a piano player herself or she really loves piano. But in this film, I viewed it as, as you said, it's like a sense of agency. It's something that she has for herself, something that she mm-hmm. can do on her own. And no one can tell her anything. This is something she's doing on herself. So how did you view the use of the piano as it relates to Ada in this film? Yeah. Well, I mean, we've discussed it being kind of her inner voice and a way for her to communicate. I also think it's something that just grounds her, but also provides an escape for her too. Because there's a big difference when she's, you know, living her life. And then when she's sitting and playing the piano, it's almost like two characters that you see. It just seems like in those moments when she's in the flow of playing the piano, she's escaping all of this bullshit, all of this oppression. And she's just letting herself be 
be taken away by that that music. And I also just, you know, everybody has a keepsake or things that they keep from the different places mm-hmm. that they've moved or been. I mean, most of us keep something small that's easy to transport. Um, but no, not her. She <laughs> she takes a giant, giant, <laughs> giant piano everywhere she goes. But that is her sense of this is who I am, no matter where I go, no matter where these men shit me off to. Uh, this is, this is home to me. I just need this, this item. And, you know, obviously we'll get into the end, but up until yeah. that point, that was kind of the safety net to herself. I think I agree. You know, that's that connection to who she is and who she is in her inner world. Yeah. It's funny. Cause before I actually fully watched this film, I had seen clips in film school because I did a class on women in film. And they didn't show, they didn't screen it's a whole film, but they screened the beginning of this film. And it always stuck with me because the teacher wanted to show us the portrayal of women from mm. a, fem- a woman's standpoint. And that voice that we don't hear often or see often in film. And it stuck with me. And when I eventually watched it, I was like, oh, wow, this is even more powerful than the clip that I saw. But that clip always stuck with me. In terms of story-wise, because we've been talking about aspects of the film. I have a couple of big questions towards the end for you, but mm. story-wise, we talked about her relationship with George, her relationship with Alistair. If we want to talk about story-wise, at some point, her husband finds out that she's been uh. with George. And if, Are we going to talk about Gussie? Because we're going to have to do it. I, 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 I <laughs> want to talk about it because it's, so even yes. watching it this time, I was just so yeah. disgusted by the whole thing. Oh. And it's so it's so weird because you watch Sam Neill and everyone loves Sam Neill. And oh, he, I know. a testament He's... to his performance and him as a person where you're like, okay, I can still love you even though that you're a piece of shit in this movie. It hurts you even more because it's Sam Neill. It really does. There's, there's a couple points. So Sam Neill's character, Alistair, knows that she mm-hmm. is Basically, I don't know if you want to talk about it in technical terms. Yes, she's cheating on him. I personally don't view it that because she has no emotional ties to him. Well, and she also wasn't even a willing participant in their marriage. Exactly. So to me, it's like she is neutral. She's and a she's prisoner, basically. Like, Yeah. There's a paper to tie them together, but there's no, there's nothing else tying them together. She's a hostage. At all. <laughs> He's a full-on hostage. That's probably the best word to describe yeah. it. So, yeah. So he sees her and George, I would go as far as saying making love as much as I hate that term. But oh, they're making I think I think in this film it's making love as opposed oh, yeah. to sex. It's making love and there's hand grazing, there's this caressing. Caressing, I mean true to yeah. champion sex. <laughs> It truly is. He watches that happen and you think there's going to be a whole blowout, but there isn't. Mm-hmm. There isn't a blowout at all. I mean, he does board up the house. Mm-hmm. So I think that she knows mm, he kind of guesses something happening or he's upset with her. He boards up the house so that she can't go out without his permission, essentially. And that's just like really disgusting. And there's a couple scenes where she visits him at night and one is where she kind of crosses his chest 
while he's sleeping, he wakes up and he's obviously aroused by it. And the minute she notices that, she stops. And there's another scene where she's caressing his behind, his bum. Yeah. And he's awkward about it. And you're wondering, is he awkward for whatever reason? Because of the part that she's touching or because she's touching him and all. And he's like, why can't I touch you? I want to touch you. And she doesn't allow it. It's she wants to have, it's her. She wants to have the dominance. And it's. I think that's so beyond powerful to have that scene in that film. So th- there's that. And then we'll get into what happens once he really gets upset with her. So how do you feel about those scenes in particular? Because I thought those, very, those scenes are very brief, but I think they're very powerful when she has like slight intimate moments with her husband. Yeah. And I, you know, he does watch, he watches Mm -hmm. Ada and George and you're right. He doesn't get mad right away. He, it's almost like he watches it and has it in his head. Oh, okay. So she is a sexual person. Maybe Mm -hmm. I actually can get her to have sex with me. Like, I feel like a light kind of goes off instead of fully getting mad in that moment, he's just like, okay, well, before I just thought she didn't speak and just didn't have sex or something was wrong with her. Okay. Now I know that she does. So maybe I can now, you know? So I think think he goes, I think he goes with that first. And, you know, as for her, I think that she might be trying to, maybe secure some safety with him or keep him happy so she can maybe still keep seeing George, yes. but also at the same time trying to keep that power dynamic. He is very uncomfortable. It's kind of like a woman going to do that. A man would have to be completely submissive. And he obviously has a really hard time with that in that moment, especially since he hasn't been able to really assert any control over her. And then that that goes into a full, like he tries to rape her in the world, yeah, which is a really frustrating and tough scene because I think he just says, okay, well now I just, I'm going to take what's mine. I've reached that. I've reached that limit. And now I'm going to take what I think is mine. I'm sure we'll get into the scene, but yeah, he changes, but I do think it's all like self-serving. Once he sees them have sex, it's all about, once again, him and his ego, and how can I make this work for me? I totally agree. I think it's very much that. He's realizing that she does have that want and need and being like, okay, well, I can transfer it over to me. Maybe it was just like time Mm -hmm. and moment. George, I'm here all the time, so how can I figure it out so that she wants me that way? It's just really sad. And when it gets to that scene in the forest where he is pushing himself on her, it's just so telling that what stopped them was Flora's voice essentially calling her mother mm-hmm. from afar. It's not that if Flora even saw it happening, because she doesn't, but she's calling her mother and he does stop. And I'm so glad that she did have them stop at that moment because it doesn't make you still sympathize with him you still think that he's about trash because there's another scene after that, which we'll get into where he was going to do it anyway. The scene that we're talking about is after he unboards the house, takes the boards off the house. He's like, 
I trust you to not go see George. You're not going to see him. She says, yes, I won't see him. And she doesn't. But she tells, she gives a letter to Flora, her daughter, to bring to George. I assume describing what's been happening and that she still loves him. Flora, who, she's a child. You can't blame her in the situation where she's just like, I don't want my mom. She, In her mind, she thinks her mom's doing the wrong thing because she's not old enough to know mm-hmm. what her mom is doing. So she thinks she's doing her, her mom's doing the wrong thing. And so she gives the letter to George and he's holding an axe and he goes at her first and he goes at the piano. And then he thinks, he thinks the way to hurt her is to chop off a figure. Yeah. Because she will not be able to play her piano. That scene is really hard to watch because it's really ugly. It's so harrowing and just, it has to be one of the best scenes. It's, yeah. It's so tough, and but the acting is so brilliant in it. And I started bawling watching this the other day because you feel so angry. And th- this is when I sent the text, fuck man and fuck Sam Neill, uh, was this scene because you feel her loss because you're so attached to her and her piano. And she, is ha- she has been sold to this man for marriage. She's, you know, been taken from her home. She has to be married to this man. She's oppressed in every single way. Her one joy is her freaking piano. And there's nothing worse. He does the worst thing possible. And, oh, he just, he turns into the most violent man in this moment. And I think the thing, this, this is a scene, I think, that won Holly Hunter the Oscar. Because her face during this, when it happens, and... The thing is, she still stays silent the whole time. And you see the shock and the loss. And she stands up, though, with still composure and authority, even though you know this was it. This is what broke her. And then she's kind of like stumbling and holding herself together still. And then she's falling in the mud and the piano score is playing in in the background. And it's so horrifying and so beautiful. and. She still, but she still keeps her strength somehow, yeah. you know, and she never screams and it's like some of the best silent acting I've ever seen. <laughs> it's just, it's so good. It's so good. And then the blood gets on Anna Paquin. It's, it's Anna Paquin. And the, the beautiful thing about this scene is because Anna Paquin's her actual physical voice, Anna Paquin is screaming the yeah. way... Holly Hunter should be screaming, but the but the way a child would, but but the way Holly Hunter would be screaming, she would be, you know, and you get that from Anna Paquin, and it's two people kind of experiencing that and expressing it for each other, and it's just oh, it's so much, it's so much. It really is. Like they, the two of them, you never questioned that they could be mother and daughter, and mm-hmm. I wonder how much like work they did together prior to this. They just seemed to have such a connection. Like she truly was her voice in this. But that scene where you're watching it, like it doesn't matter how many times you watch it, where you're like, how do you just get up from that and not lose your mind? Like mm-hmm. I would be screaming for my dear life, vomiting, probably crying yeah. on the floor, let alone just getting up and just holding my hands and being kind of like, okay. I think that's when you like you really see the power of her directing. 
is those mm-hmm. choices in this scene. Just the just the sinking into the mud, but getting back up and then sinking in the silence. And it's just that's that's a director who just makes really interesting choices and and not doesn't go with necessarily what you would expect a character to do in that moment. There's a couple more things that I want to talk about. One that's kind of a side note. Well, it's not I want to I don't want to say side note, but changing gears. This is set in New Zealand and we've got a specific family that we're kind of following, but there's also the indigenous members of New Zealand mm-hmm. in this film. And the way that they're used or portrayed in this film is interesting to me, especially I, at least at the point that I'd seen this, I knew that there was that community in New Zealand, but like a lot of people probably wouldn't like the average mm-hmm. person necessarily wouldn't know that about New Zealand. How do you feel as both of us being outsiders, the portrayal of indigenous people in this film and the way that they use in particular, because I think it's on purpose the why, uh, the reason why they're in this film. Because yes, you could film something in New Zealand and you could just omit them completely, but she mm-hmm. chooses to include them because of the time that is set in. And I think that she just, she's new, from New Zealand herself. So mm-hmm. she knows the culture as much as she can and she wants to include them. What do you feel the reason is and how do you feel about? As an outsider, mm-hmm. I think that it was to also show like the opposition between the world that Sam Neill's character Alistar is living in mm-hmm. and the world that Ada's supposed to be living in versus this other way of living as well. And to put Harvey Keitel in that. Because you are curious when you see the tattoos on his face, you're you're curious about it. You're curious about, okay, well, what led George to be living this life? Yeah. And I mean, he acts as a translator too, right? So, you know, obviously that's a big theme in this, the translation, people acting as translators and kind of bridging the two worlds too, because mm-hmm. obviously they're both, they are both trying to live together. but. I think that it really was just to obviously to highlight this, but at the same time to really show the opposition of these, these two like opposing worlds that are clashing. Uh, that's how I felt too. And I, I appreciated the inclusion of it without it feeling like, Oh, I need to do this. It's more so this is, mm-hmm. this would be the natural dynamics between these characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the inclusion of them during the play that they put on with the kids and the people in the community and just them not necessarily understanding that this is fake and not in a demeaning way of just being like, they wouldn't know because it's a totally different culture. And I thought, I thought that was really good. And yeah. And you're referring to this is when they put on like Bluebeard. Yeah. Which is another inspiration for this film. So what I was reading that she was inspired by Wuthering Heights, which you definitely see. Oh yeah. So there's so much like Heathcliff, Catherine in this, and also just the 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 atmosphere, the wind and the mud and the letter writing, and it's very yeah. very Wuthering Heights. But also, I read Bluebeard was an in- inspiration for this, and I was like, okay, that's kind of strange, you know, Bluebeard. He has these wives, he cuts off their heads, and like, but at the same time, it it's about 
like a female curiosity, I think, too, and and disobeying the husband and going and exploring and being curious. Um, and so I'd yeah. love to actually how she incorporated that into a play that they were watching as well. She was mm-hmm. able to put Bluebeard in, in this actual movie. There's so many things in this. <laughs> there really is. It goes theme upon theme upon theme, you know? I think the, one of the last things I personally want to talk about is this is not even necessarily just about this film, but this film. And if we talk about the films that are remembered, that are created by women, directed by women, written by women, and the ones that get accolades, I find a lot of them are often either period pieces or trauma pieces. Mm-hmm. You don't often get um, stories about women that's just regular women that are celebrated uh, widely. And and this is this is a period piece, and there is some trauma involved, but she's essentially still a regular woman. It's rare that this type of film... I don't even know if this film was released today, if it would get what the, the sentiment would be on this film, to be honest. Mm. Maybe it would be higher or lower i i really don't know to be honest but how do you feel in, in my mind i think there has to be like a very direct statement as to be supposed to being like these are just the lives of regular women for it to be something that people actually pay attention to and talk about and give accolades to do you feel the same as someone who watches more modern films i think that a quality that people enjoy in terms of these stories and that what makes it not like you know quote trauma porn is having characters like Ada having characters that are in a certain situation but giving them strength and giving them agency and you know allowing them to be strong and allowing them to be weak and I think that if you have a character like that it doesn't come across as Oh, just as, you know, this is just a story about a woman being oppressed. And like, there's so much more to that, but the the writing just has to be good. I think that if the piano was made today, I think that, I think, I think it would be, I think it would be a success today. I think it holds up in that way where you could put this Mm. out today and it would be good. You know, she did it with the power of the dog too. You know, she has a lot of similar themes and, and characters that are kind of similar archetypes and it works. Um, I yeah. think that it's just a testament to to the writing. But yeah, you know, you're right. There are a lot of like period pieces about women. But I think that Jane Campion, she has the ability to have it set at a certain time, but flip the script in a lot of ways to make yeah. it interesting and to also challenge it. I mean, I, I agree from the Campion standpoint. I don't even say it in a demeaning way because just like I don't know because I'm always so far removed from what's going on in a new in terms of discussion of new films. So, well, you know, it's funny because you said period piece because I, I I think that a movie that is similar to this in in some ways is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know flips the script in a lot of ways too, but that is also a period piece. <laughs> yeah. But female characters have come a long way, too, in terms of, like, allowing them to be messy. And, like, look at Worst Person in the World, films Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So I think that 
the qualities of Jane Campion films, that's becoming more of the norm now, having these like really messy, unhinged, you know, um, sexual women, for sure. And I think she really had a hand in that. I think her films really have had a hand in that happening. Yeah, I think that we're allowing more of that to happen, which is good. I say we're, but I think you and I have been allowing that, but the general public has been allowing more of that. And I think (laughs) of even someone like Greta Gerwig, who Mm -hmm. I, I admittedly still has... You know, this recording is happening. I still haven't seen Barbie. (laughs) I think Jane Campion has very complex characters that people can identify with. Well, I I think that she was she was really paving the way with that in the 90s. And then, you know, the big time misogyny of the early 2000s (laughs) came in. And, (sighs) you know, that was a bit of a tough time. And it's like, now we're back. We're back. They're really bad. We have complicated ladies. <laughs> I was literally just talking about that with Dara, who's a, a regular on this podcast. And I was telling him how the, the 2000s was the worst decade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, what was so wrong with it? Because, you know, he was already in his like 50s at that point. But... Um, <laughs> I was just like, it was the worst decade for a lot of things. Like there was misogyny just came back like full force. It never truly went away, but it just was like really, really. Oh, it was like, we don't care about offending anyone. We're just going to be full blown out there. And it just was like the worst decade. And I, I have no like longing memories. Like some music that I liked a lot, obviously from that, because being an emo kid, I love that. But like, that decade, worst. And I'm excited for what we have in store going forward. Speaking of going forward, um, are there any parts of this film that we haven't discussed thematically or scenes that you want to draw attention to that we haven't talked about so far? Uh, I guess we didn't talk too much about what Flora was doing while all of this was happening. And yeah. I, you know, Anna Paquin did win an Oscar for this. So she had a she lot of sure things did. going on while all this adult fuckery was happening. Yeah. She is really interesting because she goes back and forth between living in this adult world, but then also you see her just playing a lot of the time and, and actually being a kid and going off and having these moments of just being a child. And then thrown back into this adult world, like seeing these horrors and having to translate mm-hmm. for her mother. And then you see these moments of her just kind of sitting and playing and kind of enjoying nature and exploring. And I thought that was really beautiful. It reminded me a bit of like Pan's Labyrinth, like escaping into this other world and into these different fantasies and it's the same thing as what her mother was doing with their music, I think. So a lot of like great, great little scenes of Anna Paquin just being a kid. There were are. And I think that she often wears those kind of fairy wings on her mm-hmm. to kind of really r- remind us that she is a child because she comes across as much more adult than she mm-hmm. actually is because she needed to be. It's It's so funny just watching this as... A mother of a daughter who is getting older and my daughter who is very much 
kind of her own person at this point versus when I first watched this and being like, okay, you know, what's the relationship going to be like between the Mm -hmm. two of us and seeing the personality that she has. And just Anna Paquin does such a great job. And it's funny because despite the fact that I have a kid, I am not a kid person. I find myself very awkward around children. Like I cannot be around other people's children. I'm always just like, I don't know how to talk to you. I'm so It's the only time I've ever awkward in my life is around other children. Just seeing her and the way she navigates this role. And I know a lot of people either are very sympathetic towards kids who are actors or they just are like, oh, kid actors or, you know, they're just, it's like a fluke and she didn't deserve it. I think that she very much merited the Oscar. I don't really care. I don't even know who she was up against that year, but like she did such a great job. Yeah. Well, and she also like couldn't watch the film. She couldn't watch it. I know. It I for know. so long. <laughs> you couldn't see Harry Keitel's dick at that age. Like it was too young. You know, speaking of like the mother daughter stuff, I really want to talk about the ending because I think yes. the scene on the boat where she lets the piano go. This scene, so incredible. And this movie could have ended two ways. She gets her foot caught in the rope that's pulling mm-hmm. the piano down to the bottom she goes overboard now what an ending that would be mm-hmm. that she goes down with her piano i think jane campion speaks about how that actually was supposed to be the original ending i remember i i think of this when she is floating down to the you know depths of the ocean you have it in your head where you go but what about flora yeah and when you think of that moment, she, the character actually cuts the rope and goes back up. Mm-hmm. And because this movie kind of reads a bit like a fairy tale in a lot of ways, there is the like dark fairy tale version. And then it almost has that like happy ending <laughs> fairy tale moment where she realizes that she has herself and her daughter like she doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. need the piano because it's her daughter that is her and and her home she needs to be there for her and i think that that is the right ending because there's the 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 bond they have there's no way this mother is going to leave her daughter yeah and even though i do think what a beautiful tragedy if she just sunk right to the bottom with that piano but at the same time there's no way you can watch that and and not go what about flora like what about Flora? You're gonna you're gonna leave Flora to deal with the men of the world? No, Flora needs you. So the love story isn't really her and the piano. It's really her and Flora. Flora, and that, which is beautiful. Yeah. It's just such an important message, and I think that it hits anyone. You, you don't have to have a child to understand that. Yeah, it's something that you can understand either way. And I remember I keep saying like I watched this. When my dad was very like, she was just basically born, and there's that mentality. And then watching it now as she's turning four, and just be like, you can't leave her. Like, you see the way the men treated her, you can't leave her. Mm-hmm. Like, she's strong, but she's still young mm-hmm. and she's still small, and men will take advantage of her. Like, you gotta be there. And it's a lot on you to mm-hmm. take care, you know, take that into account. But it's just so. I don't know. I found it to be so powerful, that story. 
and Jane herself, what she was going through in her life. And a little bit of background for the listeners who don't know. She has a daughter, but before that, she had given birth to a child and the child passed away Mm. pretty young. And it was a big thing, obviously. That's a big thing for anyone to have a family member pass away, let alone your own child. And it had a big effect on her life, as you can see through her films. And she's not super heavy-handed about it, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see it in this film. And when I read about that, I was like, I can't even imagine what she's going through. Even if I didn't have a child, I couldn't imagine what she was going through. So the fact that she's able to still acknowledge it through her work in such a beautiful way is just why I think she's the queen. Long overdue that she got her Oscar. Not that the Oscars are even like worth anything because they really pick a lot of trash, but... Well, listen, we all know the power of the dog should have won Best Picture. We we know. We all know. Trust me, that year was rough for me. She won director, but she should have taken home director and her movie should have been Best Picture. We but. don't want to talk about what won Best Picture that year. No. But I think that's the, the piano. I think we've covered our thoughts mm-hmm. on the piano, but I don't want to... Uh, move on from Jane Campion. So I'll move to the last portion of the show, which, you know, still encompasses her work. So the first question of the last portion is the starter film. So as someone as yourself who's seen multiple Jane Campion films, if someone's asking for a recommendation of where they should start, what film are you directing them towards? And what's the reasoning for that recommendation? I, I do think it would be the piano. Mm-hmm. I do. Because uh, I, I, it's just it's such a a masterpiece. So we, when you watch it, you're just gonna be kind of blown away by her, and you're going to want to watch more of her films. She, I think that she's most. I, this is her most known. I would say. Do you agree? Like this is this so, is yeah. it. So this that uh, you know automatically makes it a good starting movie. Yeah. You know you could go back and watch sweetie you know you like but i don't think that that would be the best idea because no. i think that that's better after you've watched a couple of her films but i think that you know i think i would go the piano first that's number one and then mm-hmm. you could probably do the power of the dog and then in the cup yeah i think i, I that would be the order and then i would kind of go into portrait of a lady bright star and, and all that mm-hmm. and maybe and then holy smoke any just anytime you want something yeah weird <laughs> yeah once you're will versed and jane campion verse then you can go holy smoke and sweetie i think it's I funny because the last time i was on the podcast for sunset boulevard i also said for billy wilder no sunset boulevard is the one to start with so i feel like when i'm yeah. on the podcast i always say the one that i'm talking about is the one to start with but i genuinely feel that <laughs> i think in, in those cases that's really i agreed both times sunset yeah. boulevard was also my starter for billy wilder and piano was also is also my starter for it's not it happens to not be the first one i saw but if someone's asking for my recommendation i would say piano and then you can go then i would say maybe even because i watched bright star in preparation just for the series for the first Mm -hmm. time and that's just like such a beautiful film and Mm -hmm. i 
I, it had been on my list for so long and I was like, oh my God, this is so great. But I would never, depending on the person, like maybe I could recommend you to be like, oh, start off in, in the cut. I think you would get it. But the average yeah. person would be like, um, I'm never watching another film from this person again <laughs> until you understand. You, you have to have like a sense of like the characters that she does mm-hmm. and how she does it to like fully appreciate in the cut, I feel like. And rewatching, because I will be covering In the Cut during this series, rewatching it, I had such a greater love for that film and just being like, it's insane that this film was made. And I love every second of the fact that this is made. I'm excited to hear what, what you and your guests have to say about that movie. That yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but second question, double bill. What film or films would you pair this one with? And what's the thematic reasoning behind the pairing of those films? Well, I did already mention Portrait of a Lady on Fire. That Mm -hmm. would be a good double bill. Just because I think the aesthetic is similar. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is about forbidden romance, you know, both feature the most beautiful beach. And I think that in terms of, in terms of cinematography too, everything looks like a painting in the piano and in portrait of lady on fire. Yeah. And I think that those would go hand in hand really well. Also the piano teacher. Yeah. <laughs> with, with Isabel Huppert. And I, and I will say this because Isabel Huppert was actually supposed to, or was up to play at so then she went on to do the piano teacher, which is, you know, the more fucked, fucked up version of the piano. Yep. And, and we love her for that. Um, we truly do. We really lovely. do. Uh, breaking the waves as well. Mm. I, I just, I don't know if there's just an energy from both of these films that I feel like they would pair well together. Mm-hmm. Tumultuous stuff. And also another very, pro- you know, provocative filmmaker, Lars von Cheer. So yeah. that would go really well. And I'll just say one more. Um, I think fan- I think Phantom Thread mm-hmm. would work. Uh, there is a, you know, interesting sexual dynamic in that movie yeah. as well that mirrors this a bit. Uh, it's also a period piece. Aesthetic and clothing are also very memorable and prominent. And another auteur director, Paul Thomas Anderson. So I think that would work mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. What about you? What about what about you? I, I want to hear your Yeah, those are all very interesting, and those are all ones that I hundred percent agree with. I it's a bit more conservative this time. I only picked two instead of like going for ten recommendations, but I did two, and I went polar opposites. I was one that was more on the trauma side of the piano, mm. and one I was on the slightly sweeter side, but very honest. So I'll go with trauma first, oh, and I thought of. Right. And you'd have to start with the forest and go with piano after. But I thought mm. of Martha. You know I love Martha. Oh, Fassbender. Yes. You gotta go Fassbender. It's my favorite Fassbender. Yeah. Martha. This is from 1974. And it's about a woman who's um, going through it would be an understatement. Um, right. She's really <laughs> going through it. And she's got a man in her life who, her husband, who is... Again, controlling it, her life would be an understatement. And what's his name again? Oh, I know. Helmet. And I, helmet, helmet, and helmet he is one of 
cinema's most evil characters. Oh. And he really gives um, Alistair a run Literally for his money. Literally has hell. He has hell in his name. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So you have to start with Martha and then you can end with piano because there's at least a sweet ending to the piano. Martha, not to give anything away, but I'm going to tell you right now, there's no happy ending to that one. This is a special place in hell for Alistair and Helmut. There truly is. So that's their first pairing. And the second one was a slightly more sweet pairing. And it's about a woman who's also married, who's taking autonomy of her life and realizes that she loves her husband, but not in the most romantic way. She loves him as a human being and wants love. And that's Sarah Polly's Take This Waltz. And I think that would be a really good pairing for this film, because I think you would see the dynamics of someone from a time that we are not familiar with. We've read about, we've heard about, we've watched about, but we've never lived in that. And take this waltz where we're so familiar with that at this time in our lives where we're like, I have lived in that time. I know what this is like. And it's also close to us as being two people from Toronto. It's set in Toronto. And I think that that would be a great pairing for the piano of just seeing a woman take control of her life in a way that may not be the best way, the best trajectory, but she eventually gets to where she needs to be. Um, yeah. But it's just that own control. So those are the two pairings for this film. Such such an underappreciated movie, Take This Waltz. Oh if you're God. not on the Take This Waltz train, I say, you know, maybe you watch it at a certain time. Try watching it when you're a little bit older or mm-hmm. give it another shot, maybe later on in your life. It's, I think it's a, just a really misunderstood movie. Yeah. And there's a lot of criticism that I think just is, are, it's not, it's not justified. It's just such an underappreciated movie. And I think a lot of people just, I don't know if they just watched it at the wrong time or they didn't, they didn't get it or, but it's, it's a, yeah. I, just, I think it's a great film. Oh yeah. It, it's, I would say don't listen to, well, maybe not all men, but don't listen to most men's opinion of the film <laughs> because it had been on my list for so long, liking Sarah Polly so much. And it happens to be that my partner, who's a man, had seen it before me and he hated it. And so I kind of stayed away from it. And eventually one day I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch it. And it changed my life. I bawled. I, I bawled. I, the emotions that I felt was like, this woman's writing a story about me and I didn't consent, but I love it. Listen, if you can't see the beauty in that video killed the radio star Ugh. ride scene, if you can't see that beauty there, don't talk to me. Really? <laughs> so I hope that you no longer talk to Dara when you're at work. Dara? No longer. Don't talk done. to him. We're done. Because he thought the movie was stupid. And that's how I know. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut this out. Maybe I'll keep it in. But the, he hates women. So, <laughs> so the recommendations from you, the recommendations from me, highly recommend for all the listeners. Those are all phenomenal films that you could pair with this film. That's also phenomenal. But I think this is the piano, and it might be end up being a longer episode than I usually do because I think it's such an important film that I want to keep in a lot of what we talked about. But Sarah, thank you so much. We're talking about the piano with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, my my pleasure. My pleasure. Love this film. So glad to be here and talking about it. So great. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Fun Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney. 
with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at samefacesandmovies.com or send us an email at samefacesandmovies at gmail.com. While you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on In the Cut. <laughs>